With traffic, errands, and parking, cars can be a chore. But a great car can be an adventure, a getaway, and a prized possession. Whatever your budget or family require, there's a car out there you'll love. We're here to help you find it. I'm Todd. I'm Paul. And this is the Everyday Driver Car Debate. We were just talking about the fact this is a first for us. We have pod, we, we generally are obviously in a studio or a hotel room for the podcast. You've instantly noticed the change in sound. That is because not only is this a podcast recorded on the road, this is a podcast while road tripping in our crazy sedans, and we're each in different cars. <laughs> we told you that we have crazy ideas and we, we needed to get the podcast done, but we realized we're on the road. When else do we have the time to do it? So, we have looked at questions before we've begun. We are indeed remaining safe drivers. Both hands are on the wheel. We are on our headphones talking right now. And you might hear a bleep or two if, you know, we encounter stupid drivers. But uh, I'm looking at the (laughs) speed limit, getting back up to the speed limit here. It's changing. We are currently westbound on Interstate 80, headed back to Utah. We're in, uh, where are we? Rock Springs, Wyoming? We are in Rock Springs, but we're doing Rock Springs and home in Park City. And the reason for that is we've wanted to do a road trip piece with these old sedans, and we wrapped that into a shoot that we needed to do in Denver. We'll get back to that at the end of the podcast. We're going to try, without computers in front of us, to do two car debates, answer a few questions, and tell you about this road trip in these crazy old sedans (laughs) all over the course of the next few minutes while driving, while literally doing the road trip as we speak. It's pretty crazy. Did the speed limit go back up, or are we above 80 now again, or are we still at 75? Uh, <laughs> you and I are always above 80. This is part of our problem. Well, I know. But I haven't, the default seen the 80, I haven't seen the 80 listed yet. Okay. I'm just, I want to set cruise control, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. <laughs> and mainly, I just wanted to share the internal Maserati cabin engine noise at 80 miles an hour. It's touching 4,000 RPM, so I just wanted to share that loveliness with everyone. Yes, so it's, hopefully uh, it's you not can hear quite that. in there. I de- this is very I different. Have the, I have to admit. It is. It's very crazy. I definitely have the luxurious oh, version of this. But here's the funniest part of this. Honestly, this we're doing right now, and hopefully the sound quality is at least okay and tolerable. Yeah, Because this is, this is the closest we've ever done to the way, honestly, that the podcast started in our brain. It would be one That's of us true. commuting and having a phone call with the other one during the commute and talking about car stuff, and that made us go, should we do a podcast? So we are almost back to Genesis here without really trying to. And here we are trying to do uh, <laughs> trying to do your car debates at the same time. Thank you guys, as always, for the emails to everydaydrivertv at gmail because we have a backlog, fantastic pile of really cool car debates, and we're thrilled to cover them. Yeah, just think of this as a deconstructed podcast because uh, Todd's right. It started as a phone call, so you're just joining us on a phone call as we're road tripping. I'm looking at some gorgeous scenery. Wyoming is green, so I've got green earth, blue sky, and some red rocks in between. It's just gorgeous right now. So let's dive into this. First is the debate. Adam in Pennsylvania writes to us. Oh, it is still 75. Whoops. (laughs) Whoopsie. All right. Tap the brakes. There we go. All right. Adam is trying to find his cul-de-sac. And I love this email, Todd, because you had mentioned your Lotus was a cul-de-sac car. And I thought, what an apt description. And then Adam picked up on that, and he said, now I'm trying to find my cul-de-sac. He's owned a lot, but I want you to go through this description because I I love that description of your Lotus. And then, you know, everybody's picking up on, you know, I want to find my end car. There's no up from a cul-de-sac, Adam, by the way. There's no what's next. It's the end of the road. It is that. Agreed. Agreed. And that's and that's the thing. I mean, Adam, I, I, I'm excited about this car debate, and I want to unpack it a little bit, but I want to explain further that I don't think there are very many car cul-de-sacs out there. And, and to define this again, and the reason that I think the Lotus is one, is we talk all the time about get a new car experience, and if you have you know, this car over here, then a good progression from that is this car over there. We have those discussions, and there's a lot of ways you can track that. But the problem, or great thing, depending on how you want to look at it, about the Lotus Elise is that they haven't made a next version. Nobody's made the, oh, well, you've had the Elise and you love that. You should get a... There isn't an end of that sentence, okay? Mm, And so, mm -hmm. by and large, 
with most cars, that's not the case. You could come to us with almost any car you can think of and we could go, oh, you love that car? You're looking for something else? Why don't you try one of these over here? I don't think that pursuing a cul-de-sac is necessarily the right thing. I, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I didn't buy the Lotus thinking, and I'm going to keep this forever. I love it. I knew I'd like it. I'd driven them enough to know that I would love owning it. But now that I own it, I sit here and I go, there isn't a next from here. Now, that doesn't mean I won't buy other cars, but there isn't sure, a natural progression right. from the Lotus. And so I've wound up in a car that doesn't have an exit, if you know what I mean. So I have to figure right. out, am I just going to let the Lotus experience walk away and get something totally different and move on that progression? Or am I going to keep the Lotus and add? So it's not like I won't buy cars because it's me. But I don't well, think that pursuing a cul-de-sac is the right idea, though finding cars that you might love forever, that is an interesting pursuit. Well, it just occurred to me as you were describing that, is a cul-de-sac car the beginning of a car collection? Is this how car collections start? Because, well, I guess I there's no up from there. I just have to go different. So I'll keep that and I'll go hunting again. Is this how car collections Interesting start? Interesting point. Interesting point. I, well, I think, you know, we've joked about it before, but I fully stand by it. If we all had unlimited space and unlimited money, we'd all be Jay Leno because we wouldn't get rid of anything. We'd keep, well, that was the car and it doesn't run anymore and it still leaks a ton of oil and so it doesn't have any fluids in it, but that's the car I learned to drive in and we just keep stuff, but we don't yeah. because there are limitations in our life. I do okay, think so you that have a car. Shogun, that Ford oh, Shogun that Jay Leno has, that's a cul-de-sac yeah. car. You don't go up or sideways or down or anyway. It's just, <laughs> all right, I have that car. You just go shopping for Packards at that point. Yeah, I'm <laughs> shopping for Packards. There you go. Right. Well, but you, but you make a great point. I mean, I think it's, I, I think it is one of those situations where it's a car you definitely don't want to get rid of, and yet you still have it. So you figure out a place to put it in your yard or your garage or whatever, and now it just exists indefinitely. I do think car collectors mm -hmm. can have it that way. This also, but hang on. Here's the flip side, for the benefit of wives everywhere. This is also how that <laughs> I've got four cars in my yard on blocks and none of them run. That's also how that right. starts. And to the benefit of all of the marriages out there or, or hard long-term relationships, I, I, I want to caution that. Don't keep the car just because you figure I'll put it in the corner of the yard. Keep it because you plan to drive it. Let's not have anything rotting away in the yard on this. Very true. Very true. All right. So Adam is an automation, automation engineer specializing in industrial machine programming. No kids yet. He's uh, into robotics. His wife is an English learner's program coordinator for a local charter school. And his first car was a 1986 Camaro Z28. He said it was 20 years old and already had the 350 swap, beefed up automatic. It had the diff. And he did some mods along the way. He says it was lowered. It was straight piped. And his, this was his daily in high school and college breaks. Wow. So you know, went to 20 drives per year after college and then less than five drives per year traveling as he got into his career and got into his job. And he sold it after 13 years of ownership, which was, you know, to go from that car to then a 2011, 2012, uh, in 2011, 2012, to an 03 Mazda Protégé 5. So you go from, yeah. you know, the fun stuff and then you start adulting and you think, all right, <laughs> I got bills. Yeah. I got bills, man go to a protege so he says you know decently fun cool looks too much compromise sold for a profit interestingly and then Funny. as his career progressed he went to a 2010 Tacoma four-cylinder 4x4 manual he says this was a workhorse for almost a hundred thousand miles and it got the job done but downshifting twice to go uphill on the highway got really old I hear you <laughs> yeah. it's fun to not have to downshift in the Maserati I just squeeze in sixth gear and it's like, ah, right up the hill. And then whoever's behind me gets the aroma of Maserati. It's a, it's a really floral scent more than anything. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not floral. It's not floral, but, uh, but at least you, you do look good on the highway. That is one of the funny things about driving these two old cars on a road trip is the fact that the Phaeton is a stealth bomber. It's just nobody knows what it is. Nobody sees it coming. It just slinks through traffic and the Maserati stands out no matter what it does. It's just like, what is that over there? Oh, that's the Maserati. I'll, I'll lose you at a part, portion of this road trip in a downtown area and then all of a sudden I'll find you again and it's not because I necessarily even looked in the right place. It's just the corner of my eye, this cool car went, oh, that's Paul. There it is. So yeah, it's been very interesting to watch that happen. I love it. I love it. 
All right. Well, uh, Adam was also into bikes. He said, you know, second adult toy. He had an 06 Yamaha Virago and a Harley Sportster 1200. He got he was into bikes for a little bit. Interestingly, he sold both for profit. And then at the point everything changed was when he found a Miata. Isn't that interesting? It's always yes, the sure. answer, but then that's when your driving love starts to begin, I, I think. You, you discover the small, lightweight thing, and he, he says, I learned the joy of a non-precious toy, which is yeah. huge. That's fantastic. Yeah. He says, lightweight, good inputs, and he, you know, he wanted to switch the truck when needed, but he, he really discovered driving, which is cool, and ended up selling that for profit, too. You're Adam, you're good at selling everything for well profit. How, how are you doing this, by the way? Yeah, I, I, I've, I've lost money on every car I've ever sold, and the one I might not sell, the Lotus Elise, is the only one that maintains its value. I am doing this exactly backwards, <laughs> apparently. But That's true. But, Although but in 10 years, you can sell it for 30 grand. No problems. I, you're right. The thing I think is interesting here is if you track through Adam's story, the thing he keeps discovering is, I don't have enough power, this isn't engaging enough. But in listening to the podcast and thinking a little broader, he thought, you know, I was going to buy a Corvette, and he just... He just drove a ton of things. And when he drove the Miata, he just went, ah, wait a minute. I don't have to have power. I need the engagement. And that's why he bought that Miata. And he's been thrilled with it. So mm-hmm. finding one that was cheap and great and spoke to him as a driver and progressed him as a driver has been revelatory. But this is where he gets to this cul-de-sac thing of how do I find the next thing that may be the forever thing? And I, I still don't know that that's possible, honestly. <laughs> It's interesting that he went from a Miata to a BRZ and the 2016 BRZ Limited Manual. It's funny the progression there because a lot of times those are, of course, the both the cars that we recommend as far as discovery. But you went in order, Miata first, then the BRZ. Didn't really love the engine, loved everything else about it. Adam, I'm right there with you. I didn't love the engine either. And it hasn't changed at this point. And so he likes the car a lot, but he's ready for the next experience. He's also got a utility vehicle. He said he's got a rare F-150. It's a year 2000 V8 4x4 extended cab with a manual. Holy cow. That is a rare truck. I I don't actually think, Adam, I've ever heard a sentence where the word rare and the word F-150 were in the same sentence. (laughs) That's true. Uh, That's true. That's the least rare vehicle on the planet, but maybe your manual combo with with all of these boxes checks is what makes it rare. That is quite interesting, but that what also establishes the fact that we don't need utility, which is helpful here. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So looking further here in his email, he wants a toy that is somewhere between the toy that only comes out in nice weather and then one is compromised to hold gear and people. But he doesn't want to hesitate to daily it or take it a couple hours away because he's now been used to that Miata. That, you know, he's tasted sure. the, the non-precious sure. toy. Funny enough, the things he's looking at include Porsche in the name. He's oh, I see why test we driven. This. I get it now. Okay, all right. <laughs> well, honestly, I, I, this one stuck out because Porsches are not associated to be cul-de-sac cars, maybe particular special ones. Now, sure. Adam has driven every flavor of C6 Corvette, but he says the LS3 cars were not special enough. Z06 was a riot, but wasn't precise and small. And then he gave Porsche a try and loved everything okay. he's test-driven. What's interesting about your email, Adam, is that your progression is the feeling that car companies try to capitalize on. I'll take mm, BMW as an example. Audi's a good example, too. They want you to start out in the A3. And then you drive it for a couple of years, you've leased it, and then you make more money. You move up in your career and your life changes a little and you need a little bit bigger car. So you look at an A4, an A6, and then later on in life, they want you to really graduate with them and continue to love the brand so much, you'll buy an A8. Same thing with yep. BMW. This is, this is not just a progression of sizes to meet various needs. This is a progression through ownership and being loyal to that brand as Absolutely. you make more money and as you progress through your career. That is inherently designed and thought about in product planning at car companies. It's not just, hey, we'll offer you know various car, cars at this size, even though BMW's great at that. It's more like, yeah. all right, as you progress through your career, we've given you a little taste of the sauce in the two series. Here's just a tiny taste, and you're gonna want more later on, and you're gonna be able to afford an M2. And then later on, you're gonna want an M5. And then later on, yeah. 
you know, here's an M8, the huge thing that's, you know, tuned up. It's now as quick as a, <laughs> a brand new Porsche Turbo, Porsche 911 Turbo. Sure, sure. So you've reached that inherently through your own drive homework, which is interesting. And I do love that you've come to Porsche. You've suggested the Boxster S. The 986 Boxster S is something you really love among your other selections here, which you've given us a great list. But I'm, I'm looking at this and, and saying, yeah, Porsches, yes. But there is a preciousness factor once you do start going that direction because of the cost involved with maintaining it. Not that yeah. it... True. I'm not saying that True. it's going to cost you all the time. My Cayman has been really great, honestly. I've changed the oil. It's still doing great. No problems. Yeah. But um, I just, I, I'm concerned about if you genuinely want a cul-de-sac car, you're almost going to have to go more quirky and rare and weird than, I hate to say it, Porsche is a mainstream sports car. That's why I love them, because they are democratized and accessible for most sure. people. You want to taste yeah. a high level of driving, Porsches, they're not really Ferraris, even though the high-end cars are really expensive. I get that. But, you know, a used Porsche is kind of accessible. And I know that's why you're, yeah. you're looking at that. And I applaud totally. that. I say yes to that. But as a cul-de-sac car, I don't know that they are. The Lotus is. That Ford Shogun weird thing. The Renault yeah. R5 Turbo snorty little thing is a cul-de-sac car. You know, there's there's been those cars throughout history and throughout the years. But Porsches... I hate to say it, as much as I love them, they're almost a dime a dozen among sports car enthusiasts. Wouldn't you agree? Well, they are. Yeah, they are quite mainstream. And he's mentioned, you know, 987s. Uh, now, this is 986 Boxster. For those of you that aren't following along, that is a first-generation Boxster. So that is late 90s to early 2000s. And what that means is that is also arguably the worst interior Porsche ever put in their cars. And he said he oh, doesn't sure. like the interior, but he's operating with $35,000. And the problem that we have here, Adam, and I mean, a nice problem to have, but the problem that we have here is at thirty-five grand, I feel like you're a little bit under where a lot of these kind of moment-in-time cul-de-sac cars exist, mm -hmm. but you are in a sweet spot to buy a used Porsche. My comment to you is I don't think a first-gen Boxster is for you because of that interior. I think over time, you're going to want to move on because it just feels so bad and dated. It was, I hate to say it, bad and dated mm. the minute they released it. So I actually think if we're going to talk Porsche, we have to go where, you're, where you were talking about, Paul. We have to go to special ones. The problem with special yeah. Porsches is the fact that they tend to be much more expensive. And you've said you want a driver, not an old project car. I think right. the right Porsche for you, if you want to go Porsche... And since you like the first-gen Boxster, is the second-gen Boxster Spider. But oh, okay. that's a fifty to okay. $60,000 car. That's the problem. I think that's the right Porsche for you because I could see somebody getting one of those. It's a fantastic analog era of Porsche. It's a Boxster that act, and, and the Cayman as well from that same era of the mid-2000s. I think the, the, the Spider's a 2011, if memory serves. That is an interior that, while not cutting edge, is aging well. So I think you could have that yeah. car, and it would stick around for a while, and you wouldn't get bored of it, and you wouldn't think, wow, this is just out of date and all that kind of stuff. But it still has wonderful analog inputs. I'm a big fan of that Boxster version right there. The problem, as I'm saying, though, is I think those are probably 50 grand, 50 grand for the floor, and you've yeah. got 35 grand, which leads me to another cul-de-sac car that I actually think is perfect, because if you owned one, I would always argue keep it forever, and that's the BMW 1M. But that's going to be at least 45. So again, I'm above your budget. The problem is the convergence of your budget and something you want to keep long term. I think, Adam, you need to you need to separate yourself from this term we've all created of a cul-de-sac car. I think you just need to go. What's a new experience for me? And I may keep it for 10 years. I may keep it for one year. I may keep it forever. It doesn't matter. And with that kind of thinking, I think Boxster is a good call. And I also think you could possibly shop 996 Porsche 911, which is the same era. But yeah. I wonder, with 35 grand in your pocket, let's drive second-gen Boxsters and Caymans and buy one of those that's just a car you drive. Buy it entering uh, it thinking this is a car I'm just going to drive. Yeah. I'm not going to yeah. put long-term ownership goals on it. I'm not going to put preciousness goals on it. I'm just going to go, is this me? Do I like this? What do I like and not like? I'll even give you another challenge. Buy a base second-gen Cayman 
just a base one because then I think you might be less precious about it and it may educate you on the things you wish the next car had. That's interesting and I like your 1M suggestion but all these special cars that we're suggesting, I was going to suggest the Cayman R is a real sweet spot, especially with the manual transmission. Mm-hmm. But that's up totally. there with your Boxer Spider suggestion in price. They're $55,000 at the totally, cheapest, totally. I think. And so all these cars, they're so special enough that they do breed car collections. You don't want to get rid of yes. them because they are so yes. crazy and weird and special, especially that 1M. They're never going to make another 1M. That, that's it. Yeah. They're not yeah, going agreed. backwards, really, in terms of, you know, the hot-rotted parts. Let's see what we've got laying around the garage and cobble together the ultimate driver's car. That's not going to happen yeah. again. Agreed. agreed. So, I, I, yeah, I come to this thinking, I, I love your thinking, but we don't want it so quirky and weird. Because your Lotus, and you've noted this, it does one or two things at a really, really great high level. The rest of it is sort of like, okay, but that's what you're willing to do. And that defines a cul-de-sac car. Truly, if you're willing to do that, Adam, and you you say you are, then you might need to raise your budget a little bit or go even, you know, more quirky and weird as far as the car suggestions other than the ones that you got here, like a C7, a Z4M Coupe, M235i, the ND Miata, those kinds of things. You're going to have to go really tiny and obscure even more, you know, the... Porsches that we love, uh, uh, even a modded something, you know, a modded 914 or, you know, something that just doesn't exist. It's almost one of one or one of 10 or, you know what I mean? Something like that. This, yeah, this gets me thinking along a couple other lines though. I mean, first off, if you're wanting to go more utility, you could visit the world of the hot hatch. I mean, for 35 grand at this point, you could get yourself a Focus RS. Totally different life experience to anything you've done. You could go there. Sure. But I also am resonating with these unique-looking cars, these cars that aren't common, and merging that with what he's discovered in the Miata. And that makes me wonder about an ND, current-gen Miata, but the RF. Because I do think that just numbers-wise, that's going to stand out and continually be an interesting car, maybe Mm -hmm. indefinitely, because it is that great coupe shape on the Miata body, you already like the Miata. That's already worked for you. You could find one for thirty-five. You could find Makes a, it livable. A one-year at roof. Absolutely, you could find one for thirty. It would be a nice. You know, you're in this this NA right now. This would be a nice progression from your NA, but into a more livable car, a more modern car. And I and I've said it before. I do think that RF in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years, is still going to be a car that turns heads. It's that good a design. And it is, it is. I don't I agree. think that when they jump to the, whatever, I guess it'll be the NE, the fifth gen Miata, I don't think they're <laughs> gonna come out of the gate with a design that looks that good and is a hard top. I think numbers wise, it's still going to be a unique spot and it's right in the sweet spot of your history and also the the, your budget. So I think that could be a nice place to be. I mean, you could go other things that were only existing for a while. You could possibly find, you've mentioned it, the bottom end of a Chevy SS. That's cool, but it's quite a bit bigger. If you're not liking the feel of the Corvette, I don't know that you want to go that big. That in, in yeah, Miata might be the merging. I mean, I also even thought this. I even thought if you really want something unique here, because that's what I'm really hearing, you could talk Alpha 4C. But I don't think that's a forever car. I think it's a life experience car. But you're coming out of an NA where all of the controls are pretty much perfect, and it's a manual to a car that is wonderful to drive when you're not trying to find the edges of it and doesn't have a manual. So I wonder if that has a shelf life for you. Now, again, this next car doesn't have to be forever, but I I keep kind of circling back to an RF and wondering. That's a great choice, and I do like it a lot. I've fallen in love with the RF. I really have. That upgraded power, it's really brought the car to life for me, and I've always loved how it looks. To be honest, I've thought it looks like a little bit Jaguar-esque. At the right Absolutely. angle, at the money shot angle, it's it's pretty special, and I, I like that a lot. Adam, there was I, something else that crossed my mind, and that was driving a lot of cars and doing a lot of drive homework. And you have, I, I, I waffle back and forth on my, my thought here, and that is, 
the need to have driven enough cars to arrive at a cul-de-sac car that's going to make you happy enough and mm. to understand what a cul-de-sac car is because you've and you have Todd has also driven you know we both have we've driven a lot of cars and I'm wondering if that makes it does it make it easier to own and live with a cul-de-sac car having driven so many other cars and and maybe you have Adam and that just kind of makes you arrive at that point and I'm not saying you know if you haven't driven a bunch of cars I'm not saying you can't but there's so many different kinds and feelings to sample it's tough to say all right I've arrived at my car without knowing the variety of platforms that are out there it's sure. controversial I know I'm not trying to pick on anybody I'm I'm just kind of wondering do you have to drive a lot of cars to be able to arrive at a cul-de-sac car or don't you I'm just asking well, I, I think, you know, I, I think the big thing I want to return to with Adam is I don't want you to put pressure on this next car that it's a car that is just, a, it, it exists in a puddle all its own and I never have to leave this and it's going to be around forever. Don't, don't, don't put mm-hmm. that on this next car. Get something else mm-hmm. that's new and different that you can enjoy. I mean, in that regard, you haven't mentioned it yet. You've mentioned the Elise in passing, but you haven't said you've driven it. I have to ask the question. You need to go drive an Elise and see if you like that. But it is, it is a unique animal. And I'll be honest, when you talk about you want to be able to use this now and then commuting and also taking big road trips, this is not where the Elise shines. I mean, I use mine as much as I possibly can, and it is not good for road tripping. So I, you know, I, I caution you on that being a match, but if you haven't driven one, I think driving it is a very unique experience. I mean, honestly, my favorite of everything we've mentioned for you is actually the BMW 1M, but it's out of Absolutely. your price range. Absolutely. I'm just, yeah, I'm still mauling this. I'm, I'm about the RF. I really am. Prior to the engine upgrade, I probably wouldn't have been on board, but I am. And the thing is, those, I mean, the 2019 was the first year of the engine upgrade. With 35 grand in your pocket, you could just go get one. It's going to be a year or so old. Who cares? Sure, yeah, I think yeah. you thoroughly like that car. So maybe, I mean, maybe we're trading Miata for Miata. Maybe it remains the answer here for Adam, but it's not a bad one at all. Okay, we need a new acronym for, you know, Miata is again the right answer. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We need, well, you know, I did come up life. with. I did come up with the one for Cayman, which is Cayman alleviates your mundane automotive needs. So you it know, does. that's I've cre- I, I created agree. a Cayman one. So you know, it, it, there's that as well. But uh, hopefully, Adam, something in here has been helpful, and you can find something that I don't look. I don't think it'll be a forever car, but a new fun experience that you can really go. This is awesome, and I'm learning again. Let me rephrase my question real quick before we wrap Adam's email here. Does owning the Elise and the ability for us to go drive more cars alleviate your ownership of it? If you just owned the Elise and you never got to drive another car, would you still own it? Or would you like that? Or would you kind of lament not being able to sample other cars? Well, I mean, to you're, you, you're speaking to, to the you. fact that you and I are spoiled. I mean, the, the fact, you're right, the totally, fact that yeah. I have other cars than the Elise in my garage. I mean, let's be honest, this ridiculous Phaeton that I'm driving right now, which is, I think, probably the world's greatest road trip car, that counters the fact that the Elise (laughs) is probably the world's worst road trip car. So that makes that easier. Plus, my wife has the Cayenne. So that makes having an Elise and driving it all the time a much easier prospect because I have options when I need them. And then also, I can have, let's be honest, the Elise is a car that nobody else is making, so if I go drive what everybody else is already making, I'm getting the best of both worlds. It gets much harder when you don't have the opportunities we do. And I gotta be honest, because you and I are spoiled with access to cars, one of the reasons I think about keeping the Elise is because if I sell it, I won't get that experience again because nobody's making it again, but I'll get every other experience. It's the you want what yeah. you can't have thing, and that makes me kinda go, I ought to keep this. That's a Look, this is, probably the most first world problem discussion I have ever shared on the podcast. It's not actually a problem. But it is interesting to ponder the fact that if I get rid of that car, I'm not getting that experience anywhere else. Well, I I bring that up because it does, in a small way, color our commentary on the various cars that we drive. Because I feel the same way. I come back to my garage and I think, oh man, how great is this car? You know, after whatever we've driven, I would still choose this. And the whatever Mustang we just drove can blow it away as far as power. Sure. And I don't care. And I sure. think, yeah. you know, all right, well, it's a four-second car, but it's not designed 
be an off-the-line car in, I, I don't care anyway. You know, meet me on a canyon road and we'll, you know, we'll have it out or something. I don't know. But I, I wanted to bring it up and then I thought not and I'm going to anyway, Adam. The 718 Cayman and Boxster T is a mm. small run, limited, and it's almost that niche car again. It's the lightweight okay. by just a little bit, but they're still too expensive at this point. But yeah. I, I think that in the future, if you chase the 718 base or the 718 Cayman and Boxster T, that, you know, the lightweight, because that's what T means apparently is lightweight. Yeah. Anyway. Yes. So there you got it, Adam. Write to us, and uh, you've, you've been doing a great job with your driving homework. And uh, let's see if we can blow your budget almost double. <laughs> oh, we're great at that. I will say this. The, the, the thing that both you and I have right now, Paul, and I want for you, Adam, and also for all of you listening, when you drive someone else's car, when you drive a rental car, when you drive a car at an exotic car experience, whatever, we want you to still be able to come back to your own garage and be like, I like my car. It doesn't mean yeah. there's nothing out there that yes. beats it. But we want you to open up your garage and be like, I still really like this. If you open up your garage after another car experience and you go, I hate my car, that you've got to change. So, Adam, I want to encourage you and everybody else that let's get a new experience and then hopefully that's something that you like enough. And this is the thing that's great about drive homework. Drive a bunch of things. What's the one you keep coming back to? What's the one that if you if you drove something even hotter, you'd come back to and be like, yeah, but this is still great. And that's what we yeah, hope for. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, if you've got your own car debate, everydaydrivertv at gmail.com, write to us, Topic Tuesdays, Car Conclusions, and you guys are. Thank you very much. Yes, it's great. In the meantime, my thermostat implausibility check engine light is staring me in the face and telling me to go to the dealer, and yet the Maserati is stuck on 80 miles an hour. We're blasting through <laughs> Wyoming. I love this car. I Now both Todd and I are shopping for the next better generation. Like, huh, what can I get for 15 grand and like keep it? These could become our own cul-de-sac cars. You realize that? Ridiculous. Well, here's the problem. If we can find the place to store them, I think you and I are going to down the line in our life rebuy better versions of these cars. However, yeah, I will say this. I'm afraid of that. We did Podcast 500, where all of our families listened to Podcast 500, and you called me out saying that I would kind of like to have the nicer version of the Phaeton. And I got I home did. and my wife went, no. No, no, I no, did no, indeed. no. And I did that without you telling her, and I didn't realize that you hadn't told her that first, and she heard it online it's, before you had actually told her. So, oops. It's hysterical, because I got home and she was like, <laughs> we do not need another one of those cars. And I say that saying the fact that she actually really likes the Phaeton when they get along. I mean, sometimes they kind of have a girl fight and they don't really get along, but when everything right. works well and she makes it do what she right. wants... Like, the first time she drove it, she hated it. And then when she learned how the weird HVAC system works, she was like, okay, all right. So, I, you know, I, it's interesting. I, this, this road trip we're taking will have been 1,000 miles by the time we're home. Yeah. And you drive any car for 1,000 miles, and you really know what it's like to road trip in. And I have to say, this is really way up there still. Now, I also say that to say I don't do a whole lot of 1,000-mile road trips. But the next time I do one, I'm going to wish I have a Phaeton. And one of you at this point will probably be driving this car, so I'll have to figure out what am I going to do? Rent one? I don't think so, but we'll see. Exactly. Go spend 15 grand. Whenever Paul and I are searching for cars, we always start with Auto Tempest. To find the best car for any budget, it's important to cast as wide a net as possible. Check all the places they might be hiding. And you used to have to search all the different car sites separately, but with Auto Tempest, you can now get them all in one place. Auto Tempest lets you enter your car search info, and then you can see results from all the top used car sites at once, plus a bunch of smaller ones you probably wouldn't have thought to check. Auto Tempest can help you find your next car wherever it's hiding. Plus, with all these listings with one search, it's a great comparison tool to shop around and find the best deal. So if you're doing your drive homework or you're chasing your dream car or just looking to feed the disease because you want to look at cars again today, head over to autotempest.com. All the cars, one search. We're longtime users and big believers in Griot's Garage car care products. That's because while many other brands are just rebranded versions of the same few products, Griot's Garage has developed, manufactured, and bottled bespoke car care products since 1990. In fact, many of Griot's first customers were collector cars displayed at Pebble Beach. And they're a family company based in Washington State, still dedicated to having the best products for every car and budget. 
In fact, Paul learned his crazy certified Paul-owned car care style directly from Griot's. We've used Griot's Garage car care products on our own cars for over 20 years, and we wouldn't use anything else. If you're wondering how to get going, they offer free training and techniques through their videos and their website and starter kits that will help your car look its best. Griot's Garage products are 100% guaranteed, and all the liquid products are made right here in the USA. They offer a 100% lifetime guarantee, so give them a try. When you're ordering at griotsgarage.com, you can now use the code EVERYDAY for 15% off liquids and 10% off everything else on your order. That's G-R-I-O-T-S. Enjoy the finest quality car care products you can buy at griotsgarage.com. Duncan Martin writes to us from the UK. Duncan, thanks for listening. He's based in Oxford, England, and he's car got a car dilemma. What yep. fun car for 10,000 pounds. He says, three years ago, he's commuting in a diesel Fiat Multipla. Yes, the spectacularly ugly one. And he had a lowered Porsche 924 Turbo as a fun car. He says he hated driving a crappy diesel every day and getting home to see the nice car in the driveway. He yeah. loved that, but he got rid of both of them and got a Renault Zoe, which is an appliance, but it's good at commuting. And he says... He won't need to take his 10-year-old to school come September, and he can commute mostly by bike, so he can change to something that's more enjoyable. His wife does not okay. drive and has limited input into this debate, but she does have veto power if it's too uncomfortable, hence the 924 <laughs> sitting. Okay. So, at this point, he thinks he can get about 15,000 pounds for the Zoe. Oh, are we back down to 65? Had it set on 80. Pegged on 80. Crichton's We're losing a lane the too. Maserati, by the there, way. This is this is the um, this is build season in uh, in the Rockies area, and so everybody yeah, is building is. parts it's of their roads. So we keep having compression, but that's okay. Keep going. Same thing with Germany. All right. So he is thinking about reserving and holding back five thousand pounds for something like a Honda Stepwagon. Something leaves for you know ten thousand pounds for something fun. It's got to have usable back seats. His dream car is a Lancia Integrale. Wow. Huh. <laughs> uh, That's yes. a good one. That's a really good that one. That is a I good like one. It. Funny enough, some of the ones we see are so pristine, if you started it up, the belts would turn into dust and the seals would just melt away. So you're going to have to do maintenance just to get it totally. running. You almost want a car with mileage on it or it's been wrenched on. But anyway, he says his car history is full of, full of the cheapest one on Auto Trader type of cars that were cheap for a reason. <laughs> he says usually okay. because they were knackered. I never use that yep. word in a sentence nearly often enough. Knackered is, knackered is one of my favorite British terms. It's fantastic. <laughs> I love that it's knackered. That's a great description. I love it, Duncan. He says he's a retro nut. He loves nothing, nothing, and everything feeling of the early turbos, those light, switchy turbos. There's nothing. Sure. Waiting, Funny. wait for it, and then, blam, you're shot out of a cannon. Yep. I agree. Yep. But he's up for something different. He can see from his history that he sends us. He's never owned a four-wheel drive or had anything over 200 horsepower or four cylinders. Amazing. All right. All right. He's been looking at possible options under 10 grand. He says, four main camps. The older, big, powerful, luxurious coupes with potential for giant bills. You know, you could buy, (laughs) like, the Maserati Gran Turismo. It's sort of like this in a coupe form with the same amount of anxiety. Just... Just saying. Don't don't do that, Duncan. You don't want the anxiety, and you don't want the conversations with your wife either. If she's not a car person, <laughs> that's not going to lead her the right direction. I'm telling you right now. Yeah. And you especially don't want her watching a live stream and finding out information that you know her husband didn't tell her on a live stream <laughs> in public before she was consulted. Yeah, that would that would be bad. All bad. Anyway, yes, for sure. You, oh, I love you. Got the Porsche 928 on here. Holden Monaro. Yeah, Jaguar XKR. Ooh, XKR could be interesting. Those were naughty cars they they just are naughty you you're just ooh, you get into trouble in those things but you know but i like uk i like the 928 here though i mean not to make it an all porsche <laughs> podcast but the 928 is interesting yeah, but, and we've talked about this before that the uk is fascinating because of the way your taxes and registration fees change as cars get older true. they get more expensive and so that means the, the worth of the old cars drops through the floor a 928, if you could find one in decent tech that's in the, U- the UK and you've got back seats, out, I, I think that's a pretty cool one. But keep going. I don't want the serpentine belt anxiety for him, so 
you know, they're great. No, unless they have a Chevy 350 in them. No, just kidding. All right. Older Japanese rallies, he says, varying degrees of shoutiness and horrible plastic interiors. They are good at that, aren't they? I love it. What else? Japanese coupes. Oh, uh, yes. Japanese coupes. Great handling. Not so much power. He says, will a Mazda RX-8 explode? Honda Integra DC5, the GT86, of course. Hot hatches is the fourth category, either common or semi-modern ones that are all-rounders or retro legends with all, without that much performance or anything in the way of safety. Safety and <laughs> caution to the wind. I love it. Throw it out it. with your Alpha 147 GTA or your Peugeot 205 309 GTI or a marked... Mark II Golf GTI. Yeah, we're, yes. We're, no more. It's, it's like with That's every choice, Duncan so goes back a few years. He just keeps getting older and older in his car choices. It's very funny. The only M3s in the budget are the SMG ones, which he does not fancy. i got to mm-hmm. go into neutral here. The Maserati hates creeping along in traffic. We're stuck in construction traffic, and we're on the other side of the freeway right now, so we're, it's a divided highway. The Maserati does not like to creep along because this is not really an auto. Ah. Yeah. So I have to what, baby it honestly, along and then the clutch judders into Yeah. We we were we were about to, to go through we're back into these cars again, but I love it. We were about to go through a drive through <clears throat> on our recent shoot and Paul comes over to me and goes, Can we please take the Phaeton? And I said, Why? What's wrong with your car? And then and then it dawned on me, Oh, that's right. Your car can't creep. And oh, you know, that, this has got a classic the Phaeton's got a classic automatic and so creeping's no problem. <clears throat> but anyway, that's very funny. So Duncan, Duncan has a had lot a of huge history. Of you see this? Yeah, the, the, uh, the, he's owned more cars than most people listening will have in their lifetime, and he's still shopping. Totally, it's it's amazing the range of stuff here. But you do like the quirky and the small. So I think, in spite of needing back seats, I think that is key. I want to go to the RX-8 for a second because you brought it up, Duncan, and I think it's a worthwhile possibility here. Here's what I challenge you to do: go drive the RX-8 and the GT86 and think about both of them for your usage. The RX-8 mm. is a car, mm. much like the Phaeton that I'm driving now that I think about it, it just needs an attentive owner. There are people that have had the RX-8 and have had them for a long time, and they consistently give them oil, and they rev them out like they need to, and they've run well. And there are also people that at 150,000 miles, they're on their third engine. I'm not making that up. Those stories are out there. So it depends on who owned it before you. That's going to be huge to find out. And are you willing to just kind of be nice to to it? Give it the care and feeding that it requires. If you are, I think you'd really enjoy that car. Of course, then you can swap that over to the 86. It's funny because the RX-8, the interesting thing about that is the engine. The GT86, the least interesting thing about it is its engine. Both of them have got small, somewhat usable back seats and a surprisingly small car that feels amazing in the corners. So they're very similar in that regard, but the approaches are so different that since you've got them both on your list, you need to drive both of those for sure. I actually think, this is, this is an opinion I'm sure is uh, not going to be liked by everybody, but I actually think that those two, the RX-8 and the 86, are more interesting than the icons from the 90s front-wheel drive from Japan, just because I prefer rear-wheel mm. drive. You couldn't go wrong with an 80, with an Integra. Those are very cool. We've driven one. We did a fast blast. They're very fun to drive. I will not take that away from it. But I'd rather be in the newer RX-8 or the even newer GT86 than an old Integra, just because I like that rear-wheel drive feel, in spite of the awesome lightweight stuff of the 90s. Yeah, I want to I suggest uh, rear-wheel drive as well, because I was thinking about the Abarth, the Fiat Abarth 500. And as fun as that is, and quirky and unique, and in your budget as that car is, it's more of the same. You know what I mean? You you said, you know, I've not had over 200 brake horsepower and four cylinders. And I think, all right, that's great. It's a fun car. It's just more of the same of what you've had. You have had the 924 Turbo, which is Mm -hmm. cool. I hmm, I wonder what 944s are like, but then I think about your wife's veto power, and I've got to work around that. So the car that's over here that I have mentioned on the podcast that I really like, but I've never driven one, is the Peugeot RCZR. They're out of mm. production. They're very rare, especially the R. 
there's, you know, RCZs floating around Europe, but the R is a rare car. Now, this is also a front-wheel drive car. There's more power going to the front wheels. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 horsepower going to the front wheels. I just like them. And they do yeah. that thing that you need. I have not checked the prices on the RCZs, especially the Rs. If they are, I'd, I'd love for you to go consider that just simply because they are so quirky and rare and kind of fun. But, I again, they're front-wheel drive. So I come back to the rear-wheel drive choices You know, it's interesting because some of the things that we might recommend, like a Corvette or something like that, might not be as readily available. Hmm. True. I'm I'm wondering about this. The other other thing I'm pondering for him, though, considering the things you haven't had, Duncan, is let's walk over to BMW for a second. You said the only M3s in your budget are the SMGs. That means you're talking about the beloved E46 BMW, which is great. That is an excellent uh, M3. Watch our Icon film where we drive all of them. That is an excellent one. However, some of the non-M flavors I better in your budget, like the one we didn't get that we've lusted after, that 135 uh, shooting brake. It's a little four-seat wagon that they made in the early 2000s. What are those selling for in the UK? Because I have to think they're down there. I have to think that you could get a more modern BMW than the E46, but it would still have hydraulic steering. And you can get them with a decent engine. I think that could be really fun, which also leads me to the early ones of the current 2 Series, the 228i and maybe even the M235i. Those are dropping fast here in the States. I don't they know. Are. I suspect your they budget are. is just below the M235, but I bet you you could find yourself a 228i or maybe almost get there in that regard. And I think those, with the proper track sport packs or whatever they're called, I think those would actually be very fun to drive. Your rear-wheel drive, you have back seats, you've got good turbo power. But the more I ponder, the more I really think about that shooting brake 135 we never got. If you got one in the right spec, because, I mean, look, if you get one rental car spec, you know, the small engine and none of the sporty goodies, it's going to be boring. But if you get one in the right spec, rear-wheel drive, the right hatch shape, it, it is the rare rear-wheel drive hatchback, that might be the sweet spot. Hmm, I like that. I, I am glad you said 228, because I was thinking about the 228. I do love that three-door and the five-door 135i and the 128i's. Those are real rear-wheel drive, and we've seen them at the ring in yep. you know various forms. People are tracking the daylights out of them, and I go, oh, yeah, the car we never got that we should have gotten. It's, yes. It fits such a good need. We, yep. we have recommendations that that car would fit more often than not. Just, I, yes. I need four seats, I need rear-wheel drive, but it's got to be fun, it's got to be a manual. That car would come up. I do like that a lot. I'm, I'm, hmm, I'm dreaming over here, and I'm trying to think of... Oh, wow. Uh, you, you had some good nope. choices on here. Normally, when we do the podcast, what would happen is while Paul was talking, I would be typing on a computer and pulling up mm-hmm. those 135 that I just happening. thought of to see the pricing. That's not happening right now because I'm going, you know, at freeway speed. I was going walking speed a minute ago, but now I'm going freeway speeds. I really ought to pay attention more than actually, you know, pull up uh, on my phone or computer, which I'm not doing, by the way. So uh, I apologize that we're not able to do that, Duncan. But I, I'm really, I'm, I'm staying there. I'm staying on the 135. All right. Well, then I've got this car. Duncan for you that I'm thinking about, I'm wondering about, don't have the ability to research prices right now, but since it is considered kind of a luxury car, are the prices in the sweet spot? Todd and I talk about the GLA AMG 45 a lot as the upgraded gentleman's hatch in the States. What about the CLA, the smaller Hmm. sedan, even though it looks like a coupe with the same engine, it is all-wheel drive. Holy moly, we love that powertrain. It is fast. It is all-wheel drive. And it's the opposite of everything on your list. I'm, we're talking fair. 2004 Škoda Fabias and Lancia Beta Spiders <laughs> and Fiat Uno Turbos and Alpha 33s from 1990, Nissan Micra K11 from 1995. His list is long, everyone. And it's, it's long. This and car is the opposite varied. of that. Yes. The reason we're gravitating towards BMW and Mercedes is because of those prices dropping off so dramatically. And so I'm wondering about that car as well. I think you'd really enjoy that high strung turbo, some of the 345 horsepower, all wheel drive. It's a blast. I'm, I'm wondering about that for you. 
That's interesting. And everything he's owned has been so varied, but there's been, as you said, a lot of front-wheel drive stuff that's low-powered. It'd be cool to get away from that on both features mm -hmm. to give you a totally new experience, Duncan. And again, you're shopping, we're shopping a little blind for you here, but you're shopping with UK prices, and luckily the cars drop a lot. But yeah. uh, I'd also like to get you as modern as possible. I'm going to stay on the 135, but I'm going to really encourage you to actually test drive an RX-8 and a GT86 and the 135 and, and then have a conversation with yourself and your wife and really think about what am I liking and why. Yep, yep. Well, think of the CLA, Duncan, as the smaller answer to your desire for the older, luxurious, big, powerful coupes, the big cars. Sure. Think of it just sure. scale down and a little bit more modern and kind of accessible, hopefully. Hopefully. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's even in the price range, but uh, let us know. And well done on the drive homework. You, you've done a lot and you've owned a lot. So for sure, hopefully this is helpful. We will see if this, how this podcast plays for all of you. I, I, this is not just the car debate podcast. This is the road trip car debate podcast. Again, I'm hoping that audio wise, it's halfway decent. But man, talk about multitasking right now. You and I are, are doing this road trip and navigating 18 wheelers on uh, I-80 while talking to you guys about cars. Luckily, luckily, our default setting is talking about cars, so that takes very little extra brain power on our part to actually do that. Yes. But I have to tell ridiculous stories about these old cars on this trip, and again, we're gonna do the better part of a thousand miles by the time we're done. I had a ridiculous experience when we went out on the first half of the trip, the first 500 miles. We pulled out of one of our gas station stops Chance was following me in a third car. We pulled mm -hmm. out of that gas station stop. And remember, keep in mind, for all of you listening, and if you haven't seen the videos, one of the broken things on my Phaeton is the moving portion, the adjustment portion of the steering wheel. I can no longer take the steering wheel and go up or down. I am tall enough and the steering wheel is low enough <laughs> that I cannot see the tops of my own gauges. So anything above about 50 miles an hour is lost to me. Okay, I just don't know how fast I'm going. <laughs> so we were in the middle of nowhere on an interstate. There was nothing for miles but just us and a couple of other truckers. So I just accelerated up to a speed that felt comfortable for the freeway. I can't see the gauge, and I set my cruise control. And about 10 minutes later, I thought, wait a minute, how fast am I going? And I looked around the edge of the steering wheel to discover that I had set the cruise control at nearly 100. Now... In the Phaeton, I had no idea. That is how comfortable this thing is at doing Autobahn-style speed. So the minute I discovered that, I was like, I really have to fix that. And Chance comes over the radio when I slowed down and was like, you just now realize how fast you're going? I said, buddy, I didn't see the gauge and didn't even think about it. This was what feels normal. So this is such an Autobahn bomber. I have really, as you can tell, I've been caught out by it on this trip. So, you know, 80 miles an hour feels like, I don't know, 55 so, uh, yeah, anyway. That's awesome. I felt it too. We've been swapping out cars on the trip just to talk about them. This will be a YouTube piece, as a matter of fact. This yep. is yet another episode in the saga of owning these two cars. And we thought we've actually never really road tripped them yet. I road tripped the Maserati back from Vegas after I bought it. But Todd's yep. never actually tested the Phaeton's road trip powers, which is cool. And I, I love that you are. So... I'm actually cruising right next to you. I'm in the right lane. We're cruising next to each other right now, which is pretty funny. And, uh, yeah, you, you do know about the speed, and you feel the speed in the Maserati. It's, uh, I, I love this car. Well, it's funny. We, we, we also love have our Edgar. respective cars. It's great. We, we, it is funny how much we've, we've grown to like both of these. We also have Edgar with us on this shoot. So not only yeah. did Chance get yeah. to drive both cars, but Edgar did as well. And I think he kind of crushed your spirit a little bit because he drove the Maserati first and yeah. wasn't very impressed yeah. And I have to say, every time I drive it, I'm, I'm more impressed with it than I, than I remembered even last time. And I drove it more on this trip than I've ever driven it. But then yeah, he got in yeah. the Phaeton, and he comes over the radio and goes, now this I like, which was very, very funny. But we I have just, them both, and they're like, just running, okay. which is crazy. In spite of the fact that right now I have a check engine light on the dash, I have a warning about the tire pressure monitoring system, which I'm currently fighting, and I know for a fact I'm burning oil. In spite of those realities, I'm just trucking along, and you would never know it from the driver's seat, except for the lights on the They're dash. moving. They're moving. Just think of these cars as pre-broken. I mean, they're kind of janky right now, but they're just, you know, they're running right now, right? 
pre-broken. You're right. You don't have to be precious at all. They're pre-broken. Not broken in. They're actually physically broken. And yet they still run. It's great. <laughs> and yet they still run. Jump into social media questions. We've got a couple on here we can get to. Michael DeVitro is asking if families should strive to have a fleet miles per gallon like car manufacturers do. He drives a diesel F-350. Should he strive to have his wife drive a smart car to balance it out? He says he doesn't really feel this compulsion, but it came up in conversation. And he does agree with not having cars overlap in tasks whenever possible. I don't know that you need to strive for a family MPG unless your budget requires it, to be honest. True. Or, True. you know, you have a, a particular commute, but you can usually solve that with the right combination of cars and, uh, you know, get that down. But if you're super worried about that, then, you know... Yeah, just find find that right combination of two cars or three cars, however many that will suit the family. My sister is in a position where she's got, you know, two kids in college right now, and she's having to, you know, manage four cars. And she's realizing, yeah, uh-huh, the cars need repairs, and things happen to yep. them. And so they've, they're up yep. to four cars, and they can't believe it. For sure, for sure. Well, you know, any car is efficient in the right conditions. On this road trip, I've gone from an average of 13 miles of the gallon to suddenly getting 19, and I don't know what to do with myself. But I don't, I don't know get what to cruise there. this car very often. It's very bizarre, yeah. Road trip car snacks. Ben Sherman asks our favorite road trip snacks. I prefer the Paul Newman Fig Newtons because I like Paul, <laughs> Paul Newman and I like his philanthropy. Yes. And I like the Fig New- Newmans. And uh, I like the honey roasted almonds, and what else? Uh, oh, the Sahel snacks with the different mixed nuts and all that kind of stuff. I prefer just snacking on that kind of stuff. Well, you still eat like an adult. The problem is that when I get on a road trip, I am a five-year-old. I'm normally a ten-year-old. I get on a road trip, I'm a five-year-old. I will walk through a convenience store, and I will see that candy that no one should ever eat and be like, I want to get that. You know the, you know the role of like the eight chocolate donuts that were made like 10 years ago I, oh no that, that's like a that's like a bug light to me i get into a convenience i i never eat those i get into a convenience store on a road trip i have to peel myself away from that end cap because they're always on an end cap because i'm like oh i should get some of those and then I, then i have to correct myself seriously i am not a good eater to begin with but on a road trip i am a five-year-old with money in his pocket. I mean, you know what happens when you give kids a little bit of money or you, you're trying to teach them? I've done this with my son. You give them the credit card. You let them use the machine, all that kind of stuff. I am that kid with a credit card loose at a convenience store on a road trip. So I try really hard to catch myself. But the number of times I'll get out of a road trip and be like, what is this, Cheetos and chocolate donuts? And who am I? It, it happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> You're back there eating old donuts and squirting liquid American cheese out of a can into your mouth. Well, and what's ridiculous is my wife is kind of the same way. You know those circus peanuts that you could use as doorstops? Oh, those are disgusting. My wife actually eats pretty well, but on a road trip, she will invariably come out of a convenience store with a bag of those. I didn't know that. And I'm looking at her like... Oh, Yuck. yeah. And I'm looking at him because that doesn't make my list. It's got to have chocolate in it for me. So that doesn't make my list. Oh, and I'm sitting man. here looking at her going, yeah, I'm sorry. I can't go with you on that. But, of course, my son is like, oh, good, you got circus peanuts. So it's amazing we're not all planets. But we, we, we're trying to be better because the road trip is the worst thing ever. The only good news here is that when I used to road trip a lot in college, I was almost exclusively drinking Mountain Dew. Now I almost exclusively drink water. So that's yeah, significantly better. But the... But the problem with the amount of water I drink, which is an exorbitant amount per day, is that I'm stopping every hour because I just need to get water back out. It's, I mean, there's a lot of water going through the system. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, and then the guys are gooning me because I'm trying to find the freshly ground espresso and anybody that resembles a barista, and they're gooning me for that when I have to settle for, you know, drip coffee. What's that about? I, I don't get it. We, 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 are, we are weird people when we walk into a truck stop because we are at different parts of it having totally different shopping experiences when we walk back out. It doesn't look like we know each other. Yeah, it's always the case. Exactly. I can almost order for everybody because I know what you're going to eat. I can just order for you. It's pretty funny. Well, what we mainly wish, guys, is we wish not only not only a fun car for all of you, but we also wish a fun road trip in your future. I know this sounds weird because we do a lot of driving for the show, but it's been a long time since I did just a road trip for road trip's sake. 
I mean, even though we've been mm-hmm. shooting stuff, yeah. we re- we could have gone on this trip without taking this road trip in these cars, and we decided on purpose to do it. And I am so excited that we did. We're less than an hour from home now, which means we've done nearly a thousand miles. That is on top of the actual driving we did for a TV episode this week. And I've just enjoyed the road trip part. I found it. I, I know that you know it's easy to look at screens and get cooped up, but I've found it really refreshing in its own way to have the hours of the road trip go by where there isn't anything else to do but look outside and drive has been very nicely resetting, and I wasn't expecting that I needed that as much as I've enjoyed it. I, I'm with you. I love that you said something about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. And it's been fun to swap cars, too, to experience both mm-hmm. these cars really totally. kind of what they're designed for. I mean, yep. we've autocrossed them, and that's coming as a YouTube video, but that's not what they, <laughs> they're designed for. I mean, that's yes. the fun part of owning them, but this is now driving them for as design conditions, and it has been brilliant, and Maserati seats are awesome. They fit my backside perfectly. <laughs> Love it. I have had heated and cooled seats going depending upon the outside temperature, and I, I think uh, this is the only complaint I have about heated and cooled <laughs> massage seats, is why does the massager ever turn off? Why do you time out? I'm still driving. I should be able to hit the button when I get in the car and it should turn off because I killed the ignition. Every 10 minutes I'm reaching down and going, don't you stop. Let's keep doing that. So anyway, oh, well, but at least yours I'm work laughing. properly. Mine just poke you every five minutes and you're like, what is then that's, is that like a small woodland creature caught in my, oh, that's right. I yes. left the massager on, but it's this intermittent yes. weird thing. Just yours kind of, are, yours are half asleep and they wake up every now and then to give you one elbow punch and then move on. Mine actually works yeah. correctly. So I, I'm just luxuriating back here. The difference in seats alone between the Phaeton and the Lotus is a comedy routine, let alone everything else about the cars. <laughs> I think one of your Phaeton seats could take up the entire Lotus cabin. It's that wide. Oh, I think I'd add 500 funny. pounds to the Lotus just putting different seats in it. That's hilarious. I could put these seats in there and almost double the weight of the car. It'd be insane. That's so funny. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the road trip with us. Very different podcast for us, something different, and uh, we really appreciate your questions. We've got lots to get to on future podcasts, so thank you very much for posting up, and we're looking forward to hearing from you soon. Cheers, everyone. (laughs) 